0: Welcome to The Hascast, made on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. The Hascast is a podcast where we explore the power of humanities, arts and social sciences research in Australia and around the world. I'm your host, Damien O'Mara, and in today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Damilola Ayeni. Lola holds a PhD in media and communications from Swinburne University of Technology in Australia. Her doctoral research investigates Australian's use of Facebook and its role in influencing health messaging and communications. She's passionate about social media and its widespread use in society. She also teaches multiple media courses at, at Swinburne and other universities. Demi Lola recently graduated with her PhD, how Australian Facebook users negotiate the platform's affordances in vaccine communication. And today's conversation is a PhD spotlight. So join me as we learn more about this exciting research. Thank you, Demi Lola, for joining me today on the Hascast. You recently graduated with your PhD uh, and you have the topic, How Australian Facebook Users Negotiate the Platform's Affordances in Vaccine Communication. So to start us off, I'd love to hear why you decided to do a PhD and, and why you chose this topic.
1: Thanks, Damien, for having me on the podcast. I I guess it was just the next thing to do after my master's degree, I mean the PhD. It was more of like, I got so much in the flow of things, I wasn't interested in getting a full-time job after my master's. And I just wanted to continue studying. I really enjoyed my master's degree. And I was just like, let's just keep studying. Let's just do, you know, <laughs> let's just continue being a student. I, I just enjoy being a student. Um, I also think maybe it has to do with the fact that I do not want to own up to responsibilities. <laughs> quick enough, you know. But yes, I, I was also surrounded by friends who were doing their phd at that time so i was a bit inspired as well and i come from a family of academics so i do have uncles who are professors and it was not something new so it wasn't like i no one had a phd in my extended family it was just sort of like oh you've done your masters what's next you know
0: yes continuing the tradition yeah
1: and in terms of the topic (laughs) so Uh, I've always been very passionate about social media academically, aside from the fact that I'm always on Instagram or TikTok (laughs) most of the time, I just, I guess I just wanted to do research on something I was very interested in. And, and as, as as you know, as someone who is also doing your PhD, you would understand that the topic I ended up with is not the topic I started off with. And um, it started off with something really broad. How can we use social media to cause a social change or to influence people's opinion about certain things or to to create a community? And that just was the initial thought. And then, then I came up with health. Okay, how about health conversations and then it trickled down to vaccine and it was more childhood vaccination at the start of my phd which was 2019 and then covid happened and i decided to include covid vaccine so i made it much more broader um yeah vaccine communication will be the goal i guess my my topic has the word platform affordances and i always like to explain what that means before i start talking because <laughs> I know that it almost flies over people's heads. <laughs> so I'll try to give very simple definition and I took and that would also help us understand where I'm coming from when I start talking about the research and all of the findings and all of the fun and juicy stuff towards the um, end of this podcast, hopefully. Um, so I'll I'll start with like one major definition I used in my research and which it was definition from two um, researchers and that was from one of their papers in 2017, Butcher and Helmond, and they defined affordances as platforms' features that supports, encourages, or facilitate communication and social interaction. So think of a platform feature at this moment and think about how that feature encourages you and sort of facilitates your communication and social interactions. I think that's a very simple definition. So I'll just leave it there. Yeah. And so when I start talking about the different affordances, you can kind of understand what I mean by affordances.
0: Definitely. And I, I guess a, a nice sort of Uh, segue here is to sort of ask, well, why is it important that we understand not just how Facebook users are discussing vaccination topics, but how they're adapting to these changing policies and rules and affordances when it comes to this kind of vaccine communication?
1: It's important to understand how Facebook, not just Facebook users, but users in general are discussing vaccines because vaccine is a health topic. And we've seen that there are different views and opinions about vaccines, especially since post-pandemic. Um, and so I, ge- I guess it was very important for us to understand Facebook users specific- more specifically because of the nature of the platform. And I'm using the word Facebook, Facebook because I'm just attached to the name Facebook. Um, but, you know, they changed their name to Meta, but we still just stuck with the name Facebook um i and it's it's really important to understand facebook's users because the platform's policies kept evolving and changing especially during the cause of my my phd and that meant that users were having to adapt to those changes because they really wanted to talk about vaccines it was really important for them to talk about vaccines they they started devising new ways and approaches to still communicate despite the changes that existed on the platform. And, I saw, and, I, and so I thought that it's really important for us to see and understand the way those um, behaviours evolved, especially from the beginning of the pandemic and when COVID vaccination was introduced and understand how some of those rules some of those rules and policies were also as a result of the pandemic itself you know it was just not something that was happening by itself um i'm also very um aware of the fact that all of these policies and changes were happening prior to covid so it was not just on health topics it was on other topics you know um but With my research more specifically, I saw that those changes kept reoccurring on the platform and then users were having to evolve and change to those, adapt to those um, platform policies.
0: The COVID must have been quite a disruption in many ways because going into this topic in 2019 and then seeing all of this quite rapid change occur. Did that require you to sort of pivot or or adjust your approach to your, your research?
1: I was I was formulating my methodology uh just before the lockdown. So towards the I started my PhD February 2019. So towards the end of 20, 2019, at the start of twenty twenty um was when I was thinking about methodology and lockdown happened March, April. And so it was such a time. Sometimes I always say that COVID was like working in my favor. Um, outside of the fact that, you know, we were all, you know, stuck at home and, you know, there are implications of that. But in terms of my research, I think it kind of worked in my favor. So I didn't I did not have to think too much in terms of um how to conduct the research because the university was at that point sort of very much supportive of, you know, going online to do your research. Because I don't even know how I would have conducted this research. Would it have been like face-to-face interviews? Because I my data collection method was majorly semi-structured interviews. So, and I was interviewing pro-vaxxers and anti-vaxxers. And so I don't know how I would have done that if, you know, (laughs) I don't know how I would have done that if there was no lockdowns and if we didn't have to resort to online. But I did conduct my research um, online via Zoom. And I guess the reason why I wanted to go through the route of um, semi structured interviews because of the qualitative nature of my research. I was trying to understand how things were done. I was trying to understand from the perspective of the users how were they negotiating the platform you know in general and how were they changing and responding to the policies that were happening on the platform so interviews were, was going to give me like a broader understanding and an in-depth understanding to that particular topic that i ended up with and so i did decide to go with interview and along the line i then supplemented my interview with looking at the social media analytics and the data itself to understand what um to understand if what they said they do is what I actually saw from their, you know, posts and from their comments. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um I I mean that that's interesting. And certainly I guess combining those two approaches of of the the semi-structured interviews and asking people how they ne- navigate these things, how they negotiate them, and the actual data. It's a, a nice sort of interlinking of of these two points to kind of get a, a full picture view of it. Can you talk me through some of the key themes that came out of your findings during your, your PhD? We don't have to cover all of them.
1: <laughs> yes, <Yeah. laughs> thank you, because <laughs> I was just like, where do I start from? <laughs> okay, let's start with, because I did explain what AfroDance were, so There's two major, or I guess, traditional forms of affordances. There's the technical one and there's the social one. So let's look at technical affordances as the technical aspect of a platform. I can get onto Facebook as a platform and then I can decide to create a group or create a page and then title the page or the group rather. Um, pro-vaxxers of Melbourne, right? And that's that That's that technical feature of Facebook that allows me to do that. My intention is to gather people who are pro-vaxxers into that group, who have similar interests as mine, and start that community of pro-vaxxers. That's the social affordance part. Like, I'm able to be that community. So um, that's one major finding, the fact that people were able to use Facebook to fulfill one of their goals of like, you know, creating a community of like-minded people. And that also extends to anti-vaxxers as well. Um, It was sort of like a a space where, you know, if you don't want to openly declare on your Facebook status that you are against the vaccine, you can go into that group and you find people who would agree with you, thumbs up and all of that. Um, Which brings me to the conversation of, you know, the flexibility of Facebook's that what Facebook offers in terms of like the layout, the accessibility, the popularity as well. You mentioned Facebook to anyone, everyone like knows what Facebook is. Um, and you know, you can easily, there's a lot of users on Facebook at this stage, millions of users. So it means that you do not necessarily have to shout too much about your goal, you get people on board, so long as you have similar opinions about it. Another important finding for my research was the discussion that came up around what facts meant. So because I, view, I interviewed two separate groups, which is anti vaxxers and pro vaxxers two se- separate views rather of vaccination, one view perceived fact as um, Anything that comes from an authority, like a health authority, pro-vaxxers, that's how they view fact. And that influences where they source information from and how they share it with their groups. Whereas an anti-vaxxer would view fact as something that supports their preconceived idea about vaccine. Any information that they feel is not mainstream information, something that is not coming from the government, for example, what supports their views about vaccine is facts because that is what what the government doesn't want people to know, quote unquote. You know? Mm. Um, so that also influences where they get the information from and how they share it within their group. And um, yeah, I think I'll just stop there because <laughs> it just now goes down into like more intric intricate details of how then do they communicate? What are some of the strategies they use? When Facebook started enforcing strict policies around vaccine communication and misinformation on the platform, what happened was people were now devising new ways of talking about vaccines to avoid censorship and restrictions and bans that were happening. So for example, truncating the word vaccine in asterisks on the name just so that it doesn't get picked up and this happened interestingly across both pro and anti-vaccine groups so you could do a pro vaccine group and you still have to be careful of how you talk about vaccines because it could be perceived as misinformation
0: the kind of affordances are or like the policies and rules are kind of blanket they're not they're not they're not a chisel they're a bit of a sledgehammer when it comes to how they're applied I think you may have written in the conversation I read that one of the ways that things were avoided was like screenshots or images of of things. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. thought that so was
1: instead, quite of, instead of typing out like you saw something and for example a pro might be so upset at something they found in another group that was misinformation and they wanted to share it within their group to say in case you see this word or in case you see this, this is wrong information, this is not true. Well, what you're doing is you're actually writing the same thing that you saw that was misinformation. And that could be perceived as misinformation because algorithm is not like, they can't tell that that's a pro-vaccination group. And they can't tell you're trying to debunk that word. So the best way is to screenshot it, put it on your page and say, do not, know, this is the wrong information. Do not use this.
0: And I, I imagine they kind of both learn that so people who are sharing information that's that's found to be misinformation are able to utilize that same tactic to go well if I screenshot it no one's going to notice and or the the, the system won't notice and therefore I can put out the messages I want to put out even if they breach the the rules in some way
1: yeah yeah um, you're absolutely correct it's it's yeah like you said it's almost like a blanket like rule and it could apply to anyone, anyone could be restricted, um, anyone could be censored, so long as you know you're, yeah, people just realized at the end of the day that you just needed to be extra careful, and that applied to anti vaxxers as well. Another thing I really found not too shocking, which I was also reading about in the conversation, was platform migration. So people were trying to like allude, allude to the fact that they were going to leave Facebook, but the only reason they were on facebook was because of its popularity um they were moving to other platforms like ter- telegram mm. and telegram has similar features as facebook which you know you can create groups as well you can create private groups and that's one thing one thing about facebook that did encourage um anti-vaccine groups to thrive was the fact that you can create secret groups and private groups and you know groups that you can't easily search for um yeah so they were mentioning that they were hoping to try migrate to Telegram because Telegram was less, less stricter than Facebook. And the only reason why they still have a presence of Facebook was because of its popularity. Hmm.
0: Where do you see some of the potential impacts of your findings for both research and also those working in these kind of industries around media and communication and things like vaccine communication and all of that?
1: Yes. Um. In terms of like industry use, well, which was my goal. Eventually, I was like, I mean, I wanted to offer more practical recommendations, something that you can actually go out there and start acting on. Because at the end of the day, it's a research that was done academically. But I wanted that to see that value in you know in the research. there's there's a need for more proactive comms than reactive. What I found was there was a heightened need to debunk misinformation, which I believe is more reactive than proactive. So being ahead of of the game, anticipating that there would be misinformation because there are several groups that we've identified from my research. And one of them is anti-vaccination group. That would still, no matter what, be against vaccines and would share whatever information they have. And there's also people who are sort of on the fence about vaccine and could sway either way due to the level of information that they get. And so being ahead and anticipating that there'll be there'll be misinformation and there'll be misinformation. Um, And just sort of like being that thought leader, being that conversational conversations that are being the authority figure that you know you are, and I'm referring to more like the health authorities and health communication um, aspect of things. Another thing is that my, because my research reveals a level of distrust with health authorities, which is one of the findings that came out from my research, um, this can also highlight to, you know, or ring a bell to the health authorities and health communication to maybe switch, you know, approaches on how they reach out to communities and online audiences regarding vaccines or just any other health topic in general. Like maybe, you know, consider using the communities, trusted individuals within communities to actually, you know, preach this message out. Um, the research has also highlighted some social media techniques that has helped, you know, create awareness within groups. So, for example, you know, using images, using um, short videos, videos to convey your messages. Um, finding someone who is probably reputable in the community to talk about vaccine. Um, within a specific group has proven to, you know, increase conversation and engagement on social media. So that could be some of the approaches that could be elevated as well, that were far from my research. Um, yeah, that's that's one major area in terms of um, industry that I think that this, you know, the findings from the research can help promote vaccine in the digital age.
0: I, that, I mean, that's that's really exciting as well. I I, I guess um, one of the great challenges we have, particularly government departments, which often feel quite hamstrung in their kind of communications and having to do it in a very particular, very specific way that's quite limited. And maybe this is the type of research they need to be engaging with to help justify branching out and trying yeah. new things. Um, To wrap up our discussion, uh, I'd just love to know, you're a recent phd graduate and as a current phd student um i'd just love to know what you're doing now how what what is what what is your your next steps looking like as you or hopes what are your hopes as you look to the future after your phd um <laughs> so my hopes is eventually in just
1: work, work in the industry um use my research skills my experiences as a PhD student researching topics. um, around I'm about you know tough topics that influences or you know that have topics that relate to the community using that skill to sort of like work in the industry. So right now my current role uh, is at a multicultural communication and community engagement consultancy firm which is located in South Melbourne. I'm currently working part-time there, um, the name of the agency is called Culture Burst and they're more of a multicultural arm, so uh, my role right now is doing a bit of research there in multicultural communities, and and yeah, it's been very fulfilling, I've been doing that for, I think, almost five months now. So, yeah, that's what I've been up to since I finished my PhD, aside from my casual teaching role, which I sort of held on to, just because I didn't want to leave uni. Yeah. I know the
0: feeling. I wish
1: I could do more studying, to be honest, but, uh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I miss the four walls of the university, um, but I'm also really, really aware of the fact that my skills as a researcher is very much needed in, in the industry.
0: I think that's really awesome. Thank you, Damilola, for joining me on the Housecast and for sharing your your PhD and the experience of it with us. Um, I'm excited to see what you do next. I hope to see more publications from you and more research uh, in the future because I think this is a really interesting and vital topic for not just Australia but for the whole world as they get into increasingly digitised worlds, more and more communication in these spaces and more affordances of how people get to engage with them. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much, Damien. I mean.
0: The Hascast is supported by Swinburne University's School of Social Sciences, Media, Film and Education. Produced by me, Damien O'Mara, Kirsten Ambrons and Dr. Carolyn Beasley. Follow us on Twitter, now called X, at Hascast, or you can email us at swinburnhascast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Thank you for joining me for this week's Hascast, and until next time...